Good evening, everyone. I can still see a few people walking out the back, so I'll, I'll take a few minutes to welcome you all today. My name is Cathy Oates, and I'm actually the director of Trove here at the National Library of Australia. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people on whose traditional lands we meet tonight and whose culture we celebrate as one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. For caring for this land, we are now privileged to call our home and on which the National Library of Australia stands. I grew up in a place called Warunga, which means our home, and I offer this acknowledgement with gratitude and recognition for the care given to our country for tens of thousands of years by first Australians. I'm so happy to see so many of you here tonight to listen to Michael Connolly and Chris Hammer in conversation. Michael is one of crime fiction's biggest names. He's written many, many crime novels and one work of crime nonfiction, which is more than one book a year for the last 25 years. After graduating in 1980 with a major in journalism and a minor in creative writing, Michael worked at newspapers in Daytona Beach and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. During this time, he wrote about police and crime during the height of the murder and violence wave that rolled over South Florida during the so-called cocaine wars. He then landed a job as a crime reporter for the Los Angeles Times. After three years on the crime beat in LA, Connolly began writing his first novel featuring LAPD detective Harry Bosch, titled The Black Echo, which was published in 1992. Fast forward 27 years, many novels, a TV series, movies, a true crime podcast, and many awards and accolades later, Michael's books are an absolute must for fiction lovers. His newest novel featuring Harry Bosch and LAPD detective René Ballard, The Night Fire, is no exception. But we are graced tonight with not one, but two journalists turned crime writers. Joining Michael this evening is Canberra's very own Chris Hammer. Chris was a journalist for more than 30 years, covering both Australian federal politics and international affairs. He was a roving foreign correspondent for SBS Dateline, was the chief political correspondent for the Bulletin, current affairs correspondent for SBS TV, and a senior political journalist for The Age. But Chris has turned his pen to writing crime fiction and is the author of four critically acclaimed and award-winning books, including Scrublands, Silver, The Coast, and The River. Please join me in welcoming Michael Connolly and Chris Hammer. Michael, welcome. Glad to be here. Um, since 1992, a book a year, some years more, two books a year, and you're still doing it, a new book out now, The Night Fire. I'm told there's maybe two coming next year. <clears throat> What's driving you on? Why not take a break? You, you, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I would, right? <clears throat> You've written so many books. Don't you deserve a rest? What drives you on? 
Um, it's, it's actually a hard question because a lot of people, including my wife, say, why don't I take a break? Um, I, I don't know. I'm, 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 I think I'm the luckiest writer that I've ever heard of. And, and you got to cherish the luck you get. And I have an opportunity. And um, I'm always inspired, you know, to write about these characters and use them to reflect on what's going on in the world and their, their city and so forth. It's, um, you know, it's a great job if you can get it. And so I got it and, you know, I want to I wanna keep doing it. And, you know, I'll eventually take a break, I know, um, thinking about it um, uh, in maybe uh, two or three books, taking a couple years off. So you're thinking two or three books ahead already? Uh, not in terms of, uh, I'm, I know, well, I'm writing a book now, so I obviously know what that is. And I know what I'm going to write after it. That's all I know. And is that a new thing? Were you always thinking two or three books ahead, or is that just something that's evolved as your career's gone on? <clears throat> no, I, um, and when I say I know what I'm going to do on the second book, all I know is the character I want to write about. I don't have a plot or anything like that. But, <clears throat> you know, I, every writer has this, and I'd like your take on it as well. There's something magical about what we do, and if you believe it, there's, like, how do I, how come I can be able to do this? I really don't know. And so if you don't know that, and, there's, and you see this kind of mystical thing in it, you have to believe it can go away. And, and so I, when I, I'll be, usually my routine is I'll be writing a book, and I'll suddenly know what I want to write next. And, I don't want, and so when I finish the book at hand, I don't want to wait three months to get into that, because it might go away. So I usually send in a book and start writing the next one the next day. And um, where, where I take vacations or short breaks is between drafts. But I usually don't take any break between one book to the next because there might not be a next one if I go sit on the beach or something. I kind of have confidence that if you took a break that, you know, after how many books is it now? How many novels? 33. Yeah. 33. So is there, do you write every day? Yeah, and I don't write long hours every day, but... I'm from that school, you know, where a teacher said, write every day, even if it's only for 15 minutes, with, with the idea that if you only get 15 minutes to write, at least your sto the story's churning in your head and you won't lose it. You won't lose that thread. And I, you know, I, that was, I got that in a creative writing class, whatever, almost 40-some years ago, um, 45 years ago, probably. Um, and I've just, it's just something, you know, I took a lot of creative writing classes, got a second degree in it. I don't remember anything. I didn't learn anything other than if you're going to be a writer, write every day, even if it's only for 15 minutes. <laughs> and I had student loans that lasted till I was 30, and that's all I got. Yeah. But, but, it, but it was good advice, and I've, I've followed it religiously my whole life. So though, is that a matter of self-discipline, saying I have to do it? Or is it rather, rather addictive? It's something that doesn't feel quite right unless you do it. Um, it's both. I mean, I think it's, I look at writing as a craft and I, and any craft you get better at the more you do it. So I've always held that, that if I write every day, I'm going to get better every day. Um, but, but then it does infect your life in bad ways that you'll be out doing something and you'll feel guilty. You'll feel like I should be writing. You know, I, I would love to be a avid golfer, but every time I golf, I, you know, after six or seven holes, I feel like, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be writing, you know, and it wrecks your game and all that. 
So then I tried fishing, and I was actually writing while waiting for a fish to bite. <laughs> so so it, it can take over your life, which is the downside of it. So you, you write, you might only write for 15 minutes. You write in the morning, but the rest of the day, it's still, it's still there in your mind. It's, it's still working away. Yeah, I mean, if you're lucky, if, if, if there are periods where you can't wait to get back to it, you know, and... and you know, I, I work on a TV show and so forth, but the thing that's sacred to me is I basically try to write. I mean, I'm on a book tour now, so this, it's out the window, but in my regular life, I write from about 5 in the morning till 10. And um, if I'm happy with what I got, I'll be happy for that day, and I'll go on to, you know, maybe going writing scripts for Bosch TV or something like that or, or something else. But, you know, I'll also read, reach a point in a book where I have this, you know, momentum that kind of takes over my life and, and I get back to it, you know, and then I, after dinner I'm back in the room writing and so forth. So if it's going well, you kind of can't wait to get back to it, almost, almost like you're reading this story? Almost like what? Almost as if you're reading the story as opposed yeah, to writing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, you know, on average... It takes me about nine months to write a book, and uh, you know, three of the those last three months are the um, you know you're at critical mass and it's all flowing, and that's to me writing Nirvana. You you live to get to that point where, and you know, the bad side is then you cut out other stuff in your life and you disappear from your family and things like that. So it, it's not a perfect world, you know. It has some cost to it, but. People get used to your routines and your cycles. Have your aspirations as a writer changed over the years from, from your early years when you're just breaking through to what, what you're trying to achieve with your writing now? I don't know about aspirations, but I, I think what's changed is a, a greater call to duty. You know, I'm, I'm one of the lucky people that I know I can do this for the rest of my life, and I've known for a while, you know, almost 20 years I've known I could do this. And so when you reach that point, um, you know, at least with me, it, it comes with an obligation to not only write good books and, and treasure the opportunity you have and respect it, but also, you know, um, try to take things to a second level or another level and a higher level in terms of what you're writing about, what you're reflecting on in, in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I don't mean like venture into being didactic or anything like that, but just tell stories that are reflective of what's really going on in the world. And, you know, so I don't know if that's an aspiration, but it's something I certainly feel that I have to do in my books. So there is a strong sense of, um, I guess, of morality in your tales. Is that fair enough to say? Um, yeah, sure. So Bosch is a, is a righteous sort of hero? Um, well, he's, he's got the flaws, so it's hard. I, don't, I don't think he's overly righteous. He's just some guy, you know, who has a basic code about being fair, you know. You know, you can go, you can go all the way back to do unto others and things like that. I mean, I don't think he's uh, trying to be um, judge and jury. He just, you know, follows that, that code that everybody counts or nobody counts. And to me, that's not righteous. That's the way the world should be, actually. And, um, and that's his message. When did that, that, that credo of his, everybody counts or nobody counts, 
When did that first emerge for you as a sort of driving force for Harry Bosch? It definitely wasn't in the first book, and I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was about the fourth or fifth book where he actually gave voice to it. Um, but he had, but he, you know, he exhibited it um, from book one, I think. Um, and you know, I fell under the spell of Raymond Chandler. He wrote an essay called "The Simple Art of Murder" that thousands, thousands of writers have have read and been influenced by. I certainly was one of them, and part of that was that your your detective should have a code that he or she lives by and or attempts to live by. Not everybody's perfect, and sometimes people stumble in their uh, belief systems and so forth. But um, it was in there, and then at some point um, he just said it, and I think it was the fourth book. So I, I read that you wrote um, two books before The Black Echo, your, f your first published book. Right. And they, they weren't published, they're still in a drawer somewhere. Was that what was missing from those books, that sort of character, the, the, the protagonist and that sort of morality in them, or what was missing from those books? Well, I think they had a morality, um, it, was just, it was just an inner connection you know, they were learning experiences. The, they didn't deserve to be published, but the second one was better than the first. So it gave me hope and that I was getting close to something. And, um, you know, it was just, it's hard to put in. I had a moment where I realized what I was missing, and it was with a real detective when I was a reporter. And, um, and I realized what the job had cost him and was costing him because he worked homicides, and um, and it's a you know a tough job, and and um, and I realize that that's what I'm missing. I, this this sense of dedication and cost, you know that it's that uh, law of physics. You know you throw a ball against the wall, wall, it bounces back. What you know there's an equal reaction to everything, and um, that's what I didn't have. The the cost of going into this darkness as a human being and seeing the dark side of what people do to each other um, and what that means to the person who has to kind of clean that up or figure it out. Um, there's a cost there and I didn't have that in those first two books and I think the third book, you, you see that, um, you see it in Harry Bosch that he's, that he's carrying darkness. So Bosch, right from the word go, was based in, on some part, of detectives that you'd encountered as a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a descendant of many, many influences, but chief among them are real detectives. Now, the detectives in movies and detectives in books are, were very important in influencing me, but it was spending time as a journalist with people who really did this and, you know, had to see terrible things and then go home and say, honey, I'm home, that type of thing, and, and be, be normal and be the baseball coach and all that kind of stuff. How do you, what's your relationship like with the LAPD? Because um, Harry Bosch is an outsider in a sense. He's always fighting the bureaucracy. There are police that at times you depict as corrupt, but more often probably senior police who are you know, self-serving or more interested in us covering that sort of thing. How, how do you get on with the real life 
LAPD. It's, it's, um, it's weird. It's baffling because, as you say, I'm not very kind to um, the command staff or the bureaucracy. But, but all up and down the line, they've, they've come around to embrace me. And I think a lot of it has to do with the police, uh, I mean, the, the TV show. And, you know, as recently as about a month ago, um, the commander of the Hollywood division um, said that the show has created a spree de corps because so many, so many of our, my officers, uh, people come up to him and go, like, you work where Harry Bosch works and stuff like that. And, um, <laughs> Um, so it's, it's created this goodwill, and that's, and at least in terms of the TV show, that's translated into us being able to uh, give great um, access when we're filming. Like on the show, if, if, if y'all watch it here, um, you know, when there's a, a scene in the lab or a scene in the coroner's office or the police headquarters, we get to film in the real places. They let us do it. And it adds to the, uh, what I think is the super accuracy of the show. That, that must be a real buzz for you, thinking that you started writing about a kind of an outsider type of detective. And yet now, now he and you have been embraced by, that, by the LAPD. Yeah, I mean, I got invited <laughs> about a month ago. I got this email and invite from the chief of police you know, fr from an assistant, it wasn't a personal invite, but it was an invite to uh, the ribbon cutting of this big murder book archive they finally opened. Uh, there's 22 um, different divisions in the LAPD, and they all have detective bureaus, and they all have homeless homicide teams. And so unsolved murder murders that are, all the documents are called murder books, um, they're, they're all over, they're in 22 different jurisdictions and that's not really the best way um, to keep these and to keep people looking into them. So they, um, they kicked out the cafeteria in the police headquarters and made it this massive, um, like a library like this with uh, the rolling uh, shelves and so forth of all the murder books. And there's like, there's 3,000 of them and there's many more unsolved murders but they made this, I think, 3,000 unsolved murders since I think 1990 or something. And um, so I went to the ribbon cutting and the chief's shaking my hands and I don't really know him. He's new this, he's only been there like six months. But like he was talking to me like he knew me and, uh, and so anyway, they, they cut the ribbon on the front steps and then we walk into it and above the door it says, everybody counts or nobody counts. And so, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So now I knew why I was invited because they they didn't ask me if I could, I could use that. I actually have a trademark. <laughs> so. How did you feel walk, walking in? It was, and it's the cold case room, and there is your. It's amazing, and you know, and all these people were taking pictures of it and asking me to stand in front of it and all that. So. Um, so I did use it as leverage that if I do a second season of my podcast, Murder Book, I'm going to be able to do it from that archive. Yeah. So that would be very cool. That's fantastic. <laughs> now, how many homicides are there in Los Angeles every year? It's, it's very low now. When I was a reporter in the early 90s, it was about 800. There was murders every day, uh, and to the point that, uh, as a reporter who covered murders, um, I had to have a sit-down with my editor 
and say, these are the murders, what do you want, do you want me to write them all up? And they would actually decide which was an important murder and what wasn't. And that, that was, to me was a symbol of how our, the slide of our society into really dark waters when um, you know, people who were robbed of everything, their lives, um, don't even get a mention in the newspaper. Now it's down to uh, like 200, yeah. 200 a year. So there's, there's still plenty um, of real life experience to mine. Where do you get your ideas from, your inspiration for your books? So they're based very much on, on real events in Los Angeles. I mean, there's some, some of your books famously so, but are some purely from the imagination or amalgams or, or it's, what? It's all that. It comes from everywhere and it comes from when you least expect it. This book, uh, The Night Fire, opens with uh, basically Harry Bosch goes to a mentor's funeral and his mentor's widow says, I have something for you back at the house. And it turns out it's a murder book that when his mentor retired 20 years ago, he left with a murder book. He basically stole a murder book uh, the, of an unsolved case that pretty much meant it was never, never worked because the LAPD, I just went over how discombobulated all their filing was. No one knew that this case existed. And, and so the story is twofold. His, the intrigue of why did my mentor, who taught me a lot of stuff about how to be a homicide detective, steal this book? And B, who, who, you know, it's an unsolved case. Who killed this? It's about a kid who was killed in a drug deal. Who killed this kid? So that's where we start off. And um, I'm on a, what was your question? I was, I, I was, <laughs> where you come up with the ideas? Oh, of so, um, so I was doing my podcast and I was interviewing, I was having breakfast with two homicide detectives and talking to them. The book, you know, the podcast is called Murder Books. So I have this section, tell me why murder books are so significant to your work. And they were talking about it, and they talked about how they would, at one time, were sent to one of these, tw of these 22 divisions to kind of categorize and look for some, uh, a case they were looking for. And um, they couldn't find it. And they basically said, so murder books have disappeared because our filing system is so terrible. Uh, we think that this, these murder books got thrown away because the building got hurt, uh, damaged in an earthquake. And we think they carelessly just threw murder books away because they got, you know, plumbing burst and they got soaked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that was a case they threw away. And that's what made me think about, you know, okay, so Harry Bosch gets, uh, a case disappears for 20 years and Harry Bosch gets it. So that was the starting point of this current book. Yeah, it's a, it's a great setup, I must say, because, you know, as a reader, you're thinking about three or four different possibilities at once. And... When you have that sort of initial inspiration, do you know where you're taking the book? Do you have an ending in mind, or you just you, you sort of does it evolve? No, I do. I I you know things just gestate, and I think about them, but I don't start writing till I have that light at the end of the tunnel. I kind of know how it will be resolved. I don't know anything about like you know the 300 pages in between, and so I head off towards that light, and you know, and I. I riff and um, you know improvise, and it's, it's that's the fun of uh, and fulfillment of writing to me. Would you be disappointed if you ended up with a book that you thought you were going to write? In other words, it didn't change at all in the process. I don't think I would look at that as a good year of writing. You know, I, I like how things are unexpected, and you know, it's a risky way of writing. I, I haven't written a book where I didn't take a wrong turn. 
have to back out and throw away a lot of pages. I mean, that, that was one of the things I learned over the years. I think in my early books, I wouldn't want to waste 20 pages because it took me whatever, two days or a week to write those. And I'd try to furiously try to hold on to them. Now I'm, I'm more, I know when they got to go, they got to go. And, and I, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you lost days or weeks of work. It's what has to be done. So you're more clinical. Um, you, you say you have this idea and you kind of riff on it, the story evolves. Yet it, it seems to me you're very intent on accuracy. I was, I was reading the acknowledgements in the Nightfire and there's a line in there say, you say here, the steps a law enforcement agency must take to obtain a court-approved wiretap are many. They were sh shortened for dramatic purposes in this no novel. You do spend, you do put quite a lot of effort in, in accuracy in the way the police proceed, is that right? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, I don't know why. It, it, it's the reporter, old reporter in me. I like doing it that way. I like being accurate. I'd never done a note like that. It's the first time I did, but it's because, you know, you can be deadly accurate and be deadly boring. And so I have to, like, pick and choose. And it's almost like a, you know, trick to find the one piece of true, accurate thing that will make the reader like almost uh, subconsciously nod their head and say, this is how it really is. You know? And so if you have that, you can drop out a bunch of other stuff that's boring. Um, you know, in, in this book, um, uh, a wiretap is very important, and how Ballard goes around about getting it is, is short-shrifted in this because uh, the real life, it would be really boring to go through all those steps. It is some crime books, you know, there's a bunch of clues, and then the, the protagonist, there's this sort of epiphany, there's this big breakthrough moment. But often with your books, it's more the police procedural, following up different leads, many of which don't pan out, but then something does. Is that, do you think that's an accurate depiction? And, and why do you think, why do you think that's the case? I, well, again, it's, I'm trying to be accurate, you know. Um, you know, the, there's always, um, in real cases, whether, even if they think they know who it is, they've got to investigate everything because uh, if you get to court, the lawyer will say, why didn't you check out all this other stuff? So they have to check everything, and most of it is, you know, dead ends and unrelated stuff. So I, I want to have that, uh, the flavor of that in there. I do think, though, in my books I have moments that it's all about... Harry's uh, experience and history and knowledge where something, something seemingly small will suddenly put it all together for him. Yeah. And my hope is that when, the, when, he, when he explains it in his thoughts or to Ballard or whoever, and he ticks off all these things, these are all things that are in the books, book, and I hope the reader didn't realize their significance, and so they have a big aha, you know, <laughs> moment. And, and, you know, I love that one as a reader. I love that when I find that in a book. And that's what I try to do in mine. So, so that's, that's how the, the plot is working. How important in your books would you rate the plot versus other aspects of your book, such as setting and the characters and other elements, say the morality of the story, whatever? How do you balance all of those? Or how do you assess all of those? I don't really, th I don't think about it. I just kind of do <laughs> yeah. it. I, I do think though, 
it's, it's part of Harry Bosch being around for so long. I just think he's more interesting as far as who he is and how he's trying to get, get along in life than solving the murder. But, you know, it's all important. Everything's important. And, and it's, I don't like differentiating plot and place and character because they're all entwined. You know, they're all, they're all a DNA strand. And, um, you know, so they're, so they're all important, but, you know, in my mind, what's most important is Harry and how he's getting along. Okay. I want to read you a, a quote from a guy called Simon MacDonald. I don't know if you met him. He's a bookseller in Sydney, but he's, he's a mad crime fan. He's read, not only has he read all of your books, he's read them all twice, except for the Harry Bosch books that he's read three or four times each. Oh. Okay. So, and he says this, this is a review of The Nightfire. He's saying, in the early days, the books focused on a single investigation. Think of Angel's Flight when Bosch investigated the murder of a high-profile black lawyer or City of Bones. When a chance discovery leads Bosch to discover a shallow grave in the Hollywood Hills. More recently, Connolly's novels have handled multiple narrative threads, separate investigations not always connected, twisting around each other. Think the wrong side of goodbye and two kinds of truth. Is that something you're conscious of? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have spread, in my mind, what I call it is spreading the story out, the storytelling out. And most of his books also have uh, alternating narratives. You know, you're with Bosch or you're with Ballard. And I think that's actually a uh, influence from the television show because I've been very much involved in the writing of that show. And, um, you know, when up until the point of the show, most of the Bosch books were all in his narration, all in his mind. And when we got a chance to do a show, um, the showrunner, who's the head writer, basically said we can't, we have to break away from Bosch because it's just, you know, we, we film 12 to 16 hour days and, and whoever plays Harry Bosch, he can't work all those hours every day will kill the guy. So we have to create... But you can. You can do it in the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can... Yeah, so, we, so we have to create lives for other characters. Jerry yeah. Edgar has to have a full life and kids and all this stuff. And so we spread the storytelling out, and I, and I love it. I think the show's great, and I think it's telling the same stories but in a different way and spreading the story to other, other characters. And, and I've kind of adapted or adopted that um, in my book telling. But yeah, when you write a book, you know, you just have your head down and you write a book. You don't care about stuff like, you know, I did um, uh, Two Kinds of Truth. And in that story, there's a, you know, it's a page in the book. They, they take Bosch up into a plane trying to throw him out into a lake. And, you know, I just wrote that. I, I thought, oh, that's a pretty good action sequence. And, um, and then when we tried to adapt it, that thing took three days to film and cost like a million dollars. And... Uh, <laughs> And that producer like said to me, "Would you be careful with your writing?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so. So, so the moon landing episode's been bumped, yeah. has it? <laughs> um, the other thing I guess with, with the television does well, it has those multiple strands, um, but it's very big on foreshadowing. Are you started now to more foreshadow in a certain book elements that may come to life in subsequent books? 
you know what I have? I don't. I haven't done that. What I do, it looks like I do that, but I don't. I, what I do is go look back at what I've written, and and said, you know, what can I use? What can I bring forward? So the reader will think, wow, he's got a master plan that le- that goes ten years or whatever. Um, you know, in this book, you know, one of the things on this book. Um, uh, was you know Harry is aged in real time and he, and he's and a lot about this book is about mortality and and him looking for someone who can carry on his mission and and thinking he finds it in Ballard and so there is a lot in this book about Harry's health and things like that and so when I knew I wanted to kind of ponder this in this book I looked back at what I did and I remembered oh I wrote a book about 12 years ago where Harry gets dosed with cesium. And, uh, you know, had to get checked out every year um, to see what that does. And I said, well, okay, well, maybe that cesium comes into play in this book. And, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a kind of metaphor, but it's, again, it's the cost of going into darkness. What does it cost you? And here's something. He solves a case 12 years ago, and, and now he has a leukemia. So, um, you know... That, to me, was not foreshadowing 12 years ago. That was me looking back and saying, what do I have in this, in my trunk that I can get, dig out? You've, you, you've destroyed our, our impressions that you were foreshadowing so brilliantly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there have been a couple of very prominent uh, protagonists that have been retired in recent years. Anne Cleves has basically written her last Shetland book with Jimmy Perez. And, Australia's Michael Robotham has essentially written his last um, Joe Lachlan. Really? Um, yeah, he's. he's I sta- didn't know about that. He started in a new character, and I think I haven't read the book yet, but I think Joe Lachlan plays like a little cameo. Um, are, are you thinking at all of, of retiring Harry Bosch? No, I don't think he himself could retire. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to. I put him through so many tortures over 25 years. I'm not going to be so cruel as to kill him. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So, so I think you know, he, I think he'll his page count will start decreasing, but I think he'll always be back there as a mentor. And uh, you know, I still have in my back pocket his daughter, who um, has made noises about wanting to be something in law enforcement, and that could happen. And you know, she's too young now. Um, you know, she has to have experience or else it's a real hollow narrative if it's somebody who doesn't know anything about the world so that's that's down the road but i hope that that happens and that would be um you know harry would have to be involved in that you have at times i killed off characters including Mm -hmm. some relatively major ones how does that feel as a as a writer is it simply you know they're just a, a necessary thing to do or is there an emotional connection there to me, it's a question. I finish a book and I say, am I done with this character? Is there anything more to say or, or explore? And if the answer is not really or I'm hesitant, that I can't go forward with something that I'm hesitant about. Um, you know, because, it, as I said, it takes nine months. I'm gonna, if, I wanna, if I'm going to spend nine months with a character, it's got to be a character that I want to dig into and to the next level. And so there's been a few that, you know, they just didn't, I knew that I said all I said, wanted to say about them. You know, the one that comes to mind is um, Terry McCaleb. Um, you know, and that was, to me, it wasn't a hard choice. I just said, that's it. And then my agent said, you know, your first bestseller was with this guy. Why are you going to kill him? You know, so. Um, did, did you get blowback from fans? 
Um, yeah, I got some. Uh, every now and then someone will stand up. Sadly, last happened last night at, um, where was I, in Brisbane. And someone goes, when are you bringing Terry McCaleb back? And it was like, <laughs> everyone in the audience looked at him and go like, have you read these books? <laughs> so. Mind you, you do have a, a fairly large cast of characters con to continue uh, mining. Does it give you, I know it gives, it gives me pleasure, I'm sure it gives a lot of the readers here pleasure, where different characters that you've created collide in your stories, you know, when Bosch teams up with Mickey Haller or something like that. Is that something you particularly like doing or is it just... Yeah. No, I mean, I like to write like I read. I love that. Um, I love these things when I read them in books. Uh, like, it's almost like a payoff for sticking with an author, you know, like, oh, I remember this guy from that book. Yeah. And, and I've always loved that as a reader. And, and so that I do it, you know, in my own books. And... Do you think your writing of, of female characters has changed over the years? Um, I don't think so, because I go into uh, female characters the same way I go into any character. I, the primary thing is to make them good at what they do, and it doesn't matter what the gender is. Make them good at what they do and give them experience and knowledge that will get the reader doing that subconscious head nod and then, you know, if it's a woman, fine. If it's a man, fine. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I just want them to be interesting in what they do and, have, you know, and all these characters have, um, you know, barricades in front of them. They have to figure out how to get around or through. And, uh, you know, so I don't really dwell on the fact that this is a woman type thing. Okay. Going back to the television series, when you're... I've, I've heard, again, to... to um, quote Anne Cleese, um, I saw her speak recently, that's why. She said that when she was writing her Shetland books, the Jimmy Perez in her books doesn't look at all like the, TV, the guy who acts him in the TV series, so she just doesn't see them. But with the Vera Stanhope character, the woman, um, Brenda, I forget her, her surname now, who, who acts as Vera, has now become so much inhabited that role so much that when Anne writes her Vera books, that's who she sees. Is that, do you have an element of that with Harry Bosch or, or because of the age difference between the TV character and the book character that doesn't, doesn't Yeah, it's it? weird, I, I have a similar answer. Uh, I don't see, Ty, Tice Welver's fantastic as yeah. Bosch, but the Bosch I write about in my books is not even a cop, he's, yeah. he's many years older, at least 10, 12 years older. And also, I've been writing about Bosch 20 years before there was a um, TV show, so he stuck in, the, the guy I created in my head is stuck in my head, and that's who I see, so I yeah. don't see Titus Welver. Um, oddly, though, when I write Mickey Haller, I do see Matthew McConaughey, because <laughs> um, that movie came out fairly quickly after the, after the book, or it didn't come out quickly. I knew he was gonna be Mickey yeah. Haller, and, uh, and I think he did a great job, and so I, I, for some reason I see him and hear his Texas draw. He did kind of embody that flash, flash yeah, Harry sort of Yeah, I of think he persona. really captured the character and did a great job. So tell us about the television series. What, I mean, you, you have so much on your plate writing a book, a book a year, maybe sometimes two books a year. Why were you so interested in doing the television? Because uh, I have, like most writers, I have a huge ego, and I think my stories 
you know, should be read and heard and seen and all that yeah. stuff. And, you know, I'm always, you know, it's like, why did I do the podcast? I'm just interested in all forms of storytelling and, and you know, teaching an old dog new tricks. So I, I thought it'd be fun. Uh, and it has been fun. And, but I also was, you know, when, when the movies have come along, they basically, movies are different, a different animal. They basically take your book and pat you on the head and say, we'll take it from here. We don't really need you involved. TV's different. And, um, you know, they said, we want you involved. I didn't have to fight for a position. They said, we're only going to do this if you're involved and you're making these choices because we trust you as the storyteller behind Bosch. So it was hard not to, to say, like, no, not interested. I want to write my books. Yeah. And um, so... You know, I, you know, I was all in and very much in full-time involvement in the first few seasons, and I've slowly been trusting everybody and trusting the machine that it's become and, and stepping back. And, and it sounds like you've got some benefit from that, that, that the, the style of writing in TV is influencing particularly the, the way the plots work in your books and, and vice versa, I assume. Yeah, I think so. And also... Um, T uh, scripting, whether it's movies or TV, is so much about dialogue. Dialogue has to be so good. And I think it was a good lesson for me to learn that maybe I had not been paying attention to that so much anymore. And so, um, you know, I think that, it, you know, I was learning stuff from the TV show. Because that was one of the great strengths of people like Chandler and Hammett, wasn't it? That, that, right. that their dialogue seem to capture this kind of patois of the Los Angeles of their time. Right. Um, the Los Angeles, though, of your time is a real character in your books. Um, you don't, you live more in Florida than you do in LA, is that right? Uh, not anymore because of the show. Oh, okay, so you I still have a foot in both places, but uh, I pay taxes in California, put it that okay, way. Okay, well, so, there you go. <laughs> which means I'm there more than six months. So, um, yeah, so, uh, and also, um, I have one child, a daughter, and she was going to school in LA and graduated and is staying in LA, so that dictates a lot. So I'm LA now. So you describe real locations in mm -hmm. LA. There's not, as far as I know, there's not imagined ones. Um, how, though, when you're describing a restaurant or a bar or a office block or whatever, how much are you trying to uh, depict it sort of objectively or authentically and how much are you trying to stylize that location? How much are you trying to, if you like, create an LA of the imagination? I, I don't. I, I think the, the former, I, I try to be objective about it. Um, I use it as a, two, two reasons I do that. Is one is that, you know, Harry Bosch is not real. But I think if I, you know, put his feet, anchor his feet in a real landscape, um, as real as I can get it, it helps sell him as a real person, as a real character. And so, um, and you know, also it's a, you know, the digital age. Believe it or not, a lot of people read these books and check these places out online and so forth. Um, and so, I don't want to make stuff up when I don't have to. When when the the city is a character, I'm not you know, um, propping that up. This is a really interesting place with really interesting places to go to. And the second part is that, you know, you want, us, you want your character to move forward and backwards at the same time. Harry's plowing ahead on a case and what's going on in his life. 
but you always want his past right there, and, and you can use these places to spawn memories, you know, like the Musso and Frank Grill, which is 100 years old last month. You know, Harry will have a memory of running out on the tab when he had no money and he was a teenager, that kind of thing. And, the, and it's a way of building character. Okay. So, we're almost done, so if people are thinking of questions, but can I ask you, what's next? What, and let me ask this, what characters can we expect to see more of? Well, the next book, I'm, I'm almost finished my next book, and it's um, about Jack McAvoy, who's a journalist I haven't written about in about 10 years. And uh, that was inspired by what's going on in the media business around the world, but in primarily in my country where, uh, you know, there's a, a, a big segment of um, society who doesn't trust the media anymore and questions the media and, uh, you know, the whole thing about fake news and enemy of the people inspired or spawned in me my, my old journalism genes of outrage. So I'm writing a story about um, Jack McAvoy, who's not going to, you know, take on the president or anything, but it's just a story about shows, shows um, you know, what a relentless reporter can do and, and how that's a valuable um, person to have in society. Can I ask you that? Your books are not in any way overtly political, but I guess there is a kind of a political message in that everybody counts or nobody counts. And you often depict, you know, the victims in your books are often not the high end of LA. They're the, the street people, the homeless or the prostitutes or, or whatever. Is that something that you're conscious of or is it something that you feel you need to have in your books? What's your no, I, I think I, I think that it's, it needs to be in there, and I think there's I don't know what, is there a difference between saying it's a message and, and a statement? And I don't think I'm trying to make statements. I'm tr not trying to be didactic, but um, you know, uh, it, it'd be nice if the politicians of my country would adopt that idea that everybody counts or nobody counts, but they haven't gotten the message yet. So that's what you know. I see a guy out there with the T-shirt that has it on there. Maybe if we get more of those T-shirts out, um, yeah. the message will go out. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, it's weird because you, you just have to be subtle about everything. Um, I, I don't know. I think my books are, some, you know, they're quietly political. I mean, I'm called one, two kinds of truth. Um, and there's a, you know, a little dissertation on, lying and so forth and you know and that comes out in a time when you know the our, the president of the united states can't really say anything without lying and you know and i i but i mean just just leaving subtly you get a lot of you get a lot of kickback i get a lot of kickback i can i can imagine anyway i'm looking forward to jack mcavoy always one of my favorites and particularly cool. in this environment i think, I think it would be a jolly good read anyway should we go to questions yeah thank you okay. both um, I have to say it's been fascinating to hear how your writing Nirvana and love of all forms of storytelling leads to our reading, listening and viewing Nirvana. So we do have time for questions from the audience. Um, please raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. Please wait for the microphone to be brought to you before you ask your question. This is for the benefit of those listening later at home and also for people with hearing aids who are using the hearing loop. 
Thank you. Could you tell us why you decided to call him Harry Bosch? Uh, I couldn't hear that. If you could wait for the microphone. She has got it. Just hold it a bit closer, maybe. Yeah. Could you tell us why you chose the name Harry Bosch for the detective? Yeah. Um, he's named, his real name's Hieronymus Bosch. He's named after the uh, painter from about five centuries ago. And um, just by happenstance, I studied that painter when I was at the university because I, I took like a humanities course and the professor was... Um, uh, fascinated by these paintings by Bosch, and so for about a month we studied them and wrote essays and tried to decipher what they mean. And um, you know, they're essentially in short form about a world gone wrong. So then, about 15 years later, I'm writing this book uh, about this guy who would become Harry Bosch, and I tried a couple different names. I mean, you know, a name is character. You know, you gotta deliver character wherever you can. Uh, to connect to the reader, and so don't call your detective Joe Smith if you can call him uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Um, and I apologize to anybody who's named Joe Smith, but um, you know. So I, I just had this idea. It was a like a metaphor. Harry Bosch investigates murders, and a murder scene is a world gone wrong. And I just connected it to those paintings about a world gone wrong, about the wages of sin, good and evil, things like that, and just kind of connected it. Hi. Could you see Harry Bosch in anywhere other than America? Could you see him in Australia to formulate a story? Um, well, I, 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 um, if, um, I mean, could I have set him up in Australia long ago, or you mean could he come to Australia? Come to Australia. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to be sparing with the fish out of water stories, you know. Um, I think a lot of what people like about Harry Bosch is about is how he knows the corners of 